Without a doubt, Jimmy Olsen is the happiest, merriest, young reporter in the nation. So full of life and fun that everyone who meets him can't help liking the gaily exuberant youth. And so, can you imagine how Supergirl feels when she discovers he is doomed to die? Can even the mighty girl of steel change fate and save Jimmy from sudden doom? Newsflash! Famed reporter, Jimmy Olsen has died in a helicopter crash. Jimmy Olsen? Dead? How awful! What a tragedy! He was our idol. We'll never forget him. Welcome back, friends and listeners. I know not all of you are friends, but you can be if you want to be. Some of you are enemies. We are back at you today with the Supergirl comics from early 1964. Um, We are starting with Action Comics number 309. From February 1964, written by Leo Dorfman and drawn by Jim Mooney. As always, I am Corey, and with me is my long-lost space parent, James. Corey, you're so tall. And the first story we have for you is the untold story of Argo City. Everyone lined it with lead, and they died. Oh, no, that's that's the multiply told story of Argo City that we've you know, seen like 72 times in the last 15 episodes. We open with a <laughs> an orphanage alumni reunion? That's not how having no parents works. <laughs> that both Dick Malvern and Linda Danvers are attending, and at the orphanage alumni reunion, they have a raffle to support the orphanage where the winner gets a ride on Super Horse. Ha-ha! In my secret identity of Supergirl, I've ridden Comet dozens of times. Oh, you've ridden Comet, all right. James! Read between the lines, Corey. And, of course, Linda wins the competition. Or the raffle, rather. So she gets to ride Superhorse again. And Superhorse telepathically tells her that Dick Malvern is suspicious of her being Supergirl. So Linda purposefully falls off of Comet. And does she ever fall? Like, is Dick not suspicious that Linda still has an ass left? There are speed lines coming out of her ass as it hits the ground. (laughs) Although judging from her expression in the next panel, I think even her buns of steel are not invulnerable. As she is sitting tenderly on the ground speaking to other orphans, telling them that they, too, may someday find happiness with their foster parents. Ah, 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 ah. Can someone get to me one of those donuts? And that's when some little jackass of a kid (laughs) comes up and rubs into Linda's face how he found his real parents, who lost him in a flood, but then found him years later. That is a dick move, kid. Uh, What I like to think is that that happened years ago. He just returns on a weekly basis to rub his parents and all the orphans' faces. I'm living the dream. That's when Linda has memories of her parents dying of kryptonite poisoning in Argo City. 
And that night, when she dreams, she has nightmares of her parents calling to her, telling her that they are actually alive. And then we get an EC Comics horror panel of someone unseen peeping in on Linda through her window. (laughs) Or at least that's what it looks like from how it's framed. I don't know why it's made to look like a POV shot. It's actually just her waking up again from another nightmare the next night. So Linda heads to the Fortress of Solitude because it seems like her parents are in the Phantom Zone. So she goes to talk to the Phantom Zone criminals, or rather just spy on them to see if she can find her parents. And Cruel, Jacksor, and Zod are doing what they always do, standing shoulder to shoulder, looking shifty. <laughs> I bet Supergirl's watching us right now. I, Jacksor, shall flip her off. And away I go! <laughs> and then Comet shows up, and with his telepathy, he can hear Zor-El and Allura. And they're telling her that they are in the zone, the auto-zone. I'm just going to leave that there, Corey. <laughs> but they aren't in the Phantom Zone. But Linda's like, well, I've got to figure it out. So I'm going to have my foster parents send me to the Phantom Zone so that I can talk to the criminals and see what's going on. So she goes to talk to General Zod, Cruel, Dr. Vakox, and Jetser of Krypton. Oh no, she's actually here. Retracting middle finger. And they won't talk to her. So she goes off to find somebody who might. That's when she finds Jerem, who looks like old man time, and he blames himself for the death of Argo City. And the other Phantom Zone criminals realize he's about to spill the beans on her parents, so they use their telepathy that is a Phantom Zone thing to scramble his thoughts so that Supergirl can't figure out what he means. And then Jerem is so upset, he covers his face with his hands and scampers off in a nightgown. (laughs) It's the least dignified thing I've ever seen. And then Linda calls the other Phantom Zone criminals skunks, and that's when her ten minutes in the zone are up. And so then she heads back to the fortress to use Superman's chronoscope to see the entire history of Argo City. I like how, just a couple of months ago, Superman's everything machine didn't factor into things at all. Now it's their go-to. And so she witnesses her dad and her uncle talking about Krypton's impending doom, and how the dome over Argo City was originally created to wipe out all disease, because it's a germ-proof bubble. Sure, 50 science. And then she sees uh, Kal-El's rocket blasting off from exploding Krypton, and Argo City blasting away from another direction of exploding Krypton. And then she sees Zor-El make nutrition machines to provide sustenance for the citizens of Argo, and unroll the lead sheets that saved their lives from the kryptonite. Why do I feel like you're just describing the first season of Sci-Fi Channel's Krypton? <laughs> what I like is everyone listening at home just went, oh, that's going to be a thing, isn't it? Uh, and then Baby Kara is born, and we find out that when she was around, like, what is it? Like, seven? <laughs> Maybe? Somebody built jets to propel Argo City towards a planet with a yellow sun. 
So they get to the yellow sun and they all have superpowers, as you do. And that's when Jerem, lovable old religious preacher Jerem, with his dress, starts yelling at the rest of them that they have angered the gods by going to a yellow sun. And Zorel begins to debate Jerem, which I feel is far more respect than you should show to an old man without pants. And Jerem is a climate change denier of epic proportions, saying that science has gone too far. And he uses his superpowers to move the jet drives, turn them back on, and propel Argo City away from the yellow sun. So they are now back in a red sun, have all lost their powers, and because of that, Jerem gets sentenced to 30 years in the Phantom Zone. Which is kind of odd, considering they're all going to die, so his punishment was having his life saved. Ha ha ha, revenge. They didn't know that they were all going to die yet, because the meteor shower didn't happen until after they sent him to the Phantom Zone. I'm just saying, that nutrition machine wasn't going to last forever. Zorel's endgame was just eating all of the smaller Kryptonians. Wow, that that got dark fast. Why do you think Uh, he wanted them to keep their superpowers so bad? He wanted to be able to dominate the other life forms. So, anyway, the very next panel is the meteor shower that dooms Argo City. But there will be a few weeks before they all die of horrible radiation poisoning. So, Zorel comes up with another... McGuffin, in the Survival Zone, which is like the Phantom Zone, but on a different wavelength so that they don't have to share space with those dirty criminals. (laughs) It's like first class for the soul. So he tests it out on himself and Allura, and of course this is after they've already sent their daughter off to be an orphan in space. (laughs) And his machine doesn't work. So Kara continues watching and watches as her entire city dies of horrible radiation poisoning, and we see some uh, some Knights Templar in radiation suits? That's what I'm assuming by the giant right cross on their... Sh- it's a weird design. They kind of look like Peace from the Ralph Bakshi movie Wizards. And their radiation suits are not enough to protect them. And so Kara watches as her parents disappear, because in a plot twist... The survival zone machine did, in fact, work, but it was on a delayed timer. Which is weirdly convoluted, but filled a page. <laughs> so, Allura and Zorel are saved, but everyone else in Argo City dies a horrible, painful death. So, Linda has discovered the survival zone, and now we end the issue with her trying to figure out how to retrieve her parents from the survival zone. You'll find out more in the next issue of Action Comics. But before then, we have a story of infinitely greater import, because the time has come for us to cover the death of Jimmy Olsen, Cub Reporter. Right, because Jimmy Olsen number 75 was published before the next issue of Action Comics. It was written by Jerry Siegel, drawn by Kurt Swan, and inked by George Klein. And the story's title is When Supergirl Replaced Jimmy Olsen. So, what do we open with, James? <laughs> the most conveniently placed surprise kryptonite of all time. The <laughs> Supergirl pops out of a time-space portal, spends a fraction of a second flying towards a future city to help Superman in a future mission, 
and immediately she's in front of our giant red kryptonite rock. And so she goes back in time because she doesn't know how it's going to affect her, so she doesn't want to hinder Superman's mission. I must retreat quickly back to my own time era. Otherwise, something unexpected may happen to me here that would ruin my career forever. Which begs the question, if you're worried about your image, why are you returning to your own time? Right. Stay where you aren't a known quantity. So, as she is heading back through the time barrier, she witnesses... Jimmy Olsen's death two days before, or two days after the day that she left. So she still has a chance to prevent it. If she wants to. Which, for some reason, she does. So Supergirl immediately goes to Jimmy Olsen to tell him not to fly in a helicopter two days from now. Yikes. Thanks for the warning, Supergirl. And then Supergirl goes to fly off, and it turns out that the red kryptonite has taken her powers away. Can't fly, huh? <laughs> You're just some silly girl, masquerading the Supergirl, trying to pull a prank on me. I think I almost fell for it. <laughs> me, Jimmy Olsen, smartest man in the world. <laughs> Goodbye. Also, tell me if I'm just seeing things, but the way that panel is framed, doesn't it look like Supergirl is shrinking and Jimmy's about to eat her? It, wow, I, yeah... I will never look at that panel the same again, James. Thanks. You must die feeding the all, Jimmy. Anyway, Linda turns back into her civilian clothes, and it turns out that the Red Kryptonite only affects her in her Supergirl costume, because she elbows a brick wall and breaks it. And then she decides to test things by putting her costume back on again. Oh no, I still can't fly. I see. The red K has made me non-Super in my Supergirl identity. But Super when I'm Linda! The reverse of the normal setup. Except it's not. At all. Uh, you're always Super as Linda. You just hide it. Like, it's not like it's any different than normal when you're in your civvies. I like how psychological the red kryptonite is here. Like, it knows whenever she's not wearing her cape. <laughs> well, I think what Linda's gonna have to learn is to be Super... In and out of the costume. <laughs> so Linda's convoluted plan to save Jimmy Olsen's life is to get him fired from the Daily Planet so that he can't use their helicopter. Because if Jimmy Olsen's going to die, it's going to be in the Daily Planet helicopter. So she brings a note to Perry White from her journalism instructor that uh, gets her a temporary position of reporter. And Jimmy offers to show her the ropes, which, Jimmy, you have a girlfriend. <laughs> that's never stopped Olsen before. Which, it turns out that's the first part of Linda's plan, is to make Jimmy's girlfriend think that he's cheating on her by using a fake mouse to be pretend scared of, and then uh kissing him on the cheek right as Lucy Lane walks in. And the resting bitch face on Lucy. Oh, my God. Oh, so that's how it's going to be, eh, Olsen? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, Perry, let me see that cigar of yours. Just what horrors Linda has unleashed into this man's life. Lucy immediately breaks up with Jimmy for the 72nd time and walks out on him. And the heartbroken Jimmy hands in a story. Olsen! What kind of story is this? Police haven't any leads to this killer? Will Lucy get over being mad at me? Keep your mind on your work! It <laughs> horrifies me because while all of this is going on, a serial killer is loose. <laughs> 
And Linda smirks in the background about how she knew that Jimmy's heartbreak would ruin his career and how it was too bad he wasn't fired for his mistake. How many more, Supergirl? How many more have to suffer? In her laboratory at home, she makes a a chemical to try to cure red kryptonite poisoning. And the next day, she shows up at the planet, and Jimmy is out buying Perry some cigars. So she puts some of the experimental serum on the cigars that will cause them to pop like Pop Rocks when Perry lights them. Which he does, immediately killing Perry White. Jimmy, then arrested for murder, spends the rest of his life in solitary confinement. Mad, but alive. Unfortunately, that's not what happened. No, I was being silly. And Perry doesn't fire Jimmy for giving him trick cigars, but threatens him that if it ever happens again, so be it, he will be through. (laughs) I guess that when you deal with Superman's pranks 24-7, an exploding cigar is actually pretty minor. And so Linda gets another idea, and that is to buy a cheap oriental rug and leave a note on it that it is a magic carpet and use her super breath and then her own super flight to make it actually behave like a flying carpet. Superman told me that Jimmy's last time trip took him back to the days of the Arabian Nights. People believe flying carpets existed then. You know, those flying carpets the historians are always talking about. (laughs) So... She tricks Jimmy into thinking that it's a real flying carpet, and he takes some pictures while in the air. And her whole thought process here isn't to get him fired, but that if he has a flying carpet, he won't try to use the helicopter. And so it turns out that when he gets back, he tells Perry White about the flying carpet. (laughs) And Perry's like, I have an important meeting to get to. Fly me there on your carpet. Just wait until William Randolph Hearst sees me show up to his publisher's banquet on a flying carpet. Oh. And he demands that Linda come with so she can't use her powers to make it fly. So Jimmy looks like an idiot because nothing happens. While Perry waves his fists in the air and calls this magic carpet malarkey fake news. I'm not making that up. Honest to God, Perry yells fake news. It's great. So Jimmy goes to show him the picture that he took, which Linda ruined with her x-ray vision. So there is no picture. And that is the last straw for Perry White, as he tells Jimmy to clean out his desk and that Linda is taking his job. And later that night at her home, a newsflash comes over the radio, alerting people that Jimmy Olsen was killed in a helicopter crash. Which, really, is Jimmy that big of a deal that... He would be breaking news? He's Superman's pal, Corey. We're all Superman's pal, James. He has a bow tie. So, Linda shows up to the crash site and sees dead Jimmy. And that's when... <gasps> Jimmy shows up! Alive? Right. Heard a radio announcement about my death. And heard here. This is Marty Blake, an escaped criminal who closely resembles me. Especially when wearing a red wig disguise. Aha! Uh-huh. The Raven Rug's in the wreckage. I get it. Marty masqueraded as me and went to rob the planet safe, figuring I'd get the blame. He must have overheard us talk about the flying carpet and stole it, thinking it worked. When he took it up to the building's roof and it wouldn't work, he stole a helicopter instead. Then, after he died in the defective plane's crash, he was mistaken for me. Just another day in the life of Jimmy Olsen. You're hired, Jimmy. Write that story. Not a chance, White. There isn't a paper in town that wouldn't grab at the privilege to hire me and get an exclusive on this from me. Who needs you? 
and Perry Grovel's offering him a $10 raise. I don't know if that's $10 a week or $10 an hour, but... I think he's just going to give him $10. <laughs> oh, boy, I eat tonight. <laughs> and Perry was so upset about the prospect of losing Jimmy Olsen that he is sweating profusely. Well, Jimmy is like a son to him. Linda tells Perry that she's not going to drop out of high school after all and will not take Jimmy's job. The Red Kryptonite wears off, and Lucy, having thought Jimmy died, shows up, apologizes, and takes him back. Because they always break up at the beginning of an issue of Jimmy Olsen and get back together by the end of it. And can we talk about that last panel where she's smooching him while Jimmy, blank-faced, is just melting into her? It's like, I'm really glad we don't see the next panel, because he's got a full swoon going on there. Some people thought I was dead, huh? When you kiss me like this, Lucy, I'm glad to be alive. <laughs> now put this on. Jimmy, why are you making me wear this Superman outfit? Just put it on! That brings us to the second part of our two-part story from earlier, from Action 310, also published in March of 1964, written by Dorfman, art by Jim Mooney, and the title is Supergirl's Rival Parents. And can I just talk about the tragedy of Supergirl now having too many parents? Right. Like, what a horrible, horrible thing. So we open with Linda finding Edna's wedding ring in the kitchen sink. <laughs> wow, really running out of cold open ideas, guys. You know, your comic books, you can just open with the action. Not every single issue has to be a slow build into the world of Supergirl. And Edna relishes the fact that their daughter is wonderful and super, and how lucky they are. Well, Kara laments privately in her head that she has just discovered that her real parents are actually alive. So she goes to the Fortress of Solitude and visits Kandor using a parachute. It's really fun. And tries to find out about how to get her parents out of the survival zone. And then we get a rehash of the events that we learned from last issue, which includes the entirety of Supergirl's origin story, and then one panel of the survival zone. The important thing is the reader is up to speed. So... In the labs of Kandor, they figure out that the survival zone has headed towards New Krypton, which is weird. I thought the survival zone was kind of in the same place as the Phantom Zone, but apparently it's all the way across the galaxy. Uh, it's uh, time-space shenanigans, Corey. So, Who is to say what is or is not a zone? So she heads to New Krypton, which is a memorial planet that her and Superman built to look exactly like old Krypton, but without the disastrous nuclear reaction in the core of the planet. Yet. And she gets there, and she sees Zor-El and Allura, who apparently have gotten out of the survival zone, except, <gasps> in a plot twist, it's just robots that her and Superman had built, and she had forgotten that they had built. <laughs> Though it's always usually robots. And that's when they use a vibro-projector. Ho-ho! to try to send her into another dimension, but first they use a thought-casting helmet to try to contact the real Zor-El and Allura. And they give her spotty instructions on how to free them, 
but there's something wrong with the helmet. So Supergirl tells her parent or her robot parents, let's let's get up to speed here. <laughs> Supergirl has foster parents, real parents, and now robot parents. And her robot parents, who love her and care for her as only robots created for that purpose can, are deeply against her using this device. Because it might be dangerous. As an android which I have created, you are required to do my bidding. I order you to use that vibro-projector on me at once. Understand? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, kink. And so, Robot Allura does shoot the vibro-projector at Kara, but... Robot Zorel jumps in front of it, which no. really he doesn't. She just shoots it at Robot Zorel, who's nowhere near real Kara. But that's not a self-sacrifice. That's just murder. And it does dissolve him into a shower of molecular particles. And at that point, using the thought helmet, Linda sees her real parents drifting further away because the survival zone is. Drifting in the cosmic gulf stream back towards Earth. What? <laughs> so, Linda heads back to Earth, because apparently there was no point to the new Krypton trip at all. And filled a page. <laughs> Seriously, I th- feel like you could end the description of any event in these comics with, and that filled a page. So, she gets back to Earth, and Fred and Edna are heading to a movie. But Linda is too worried about getting her real parents back. To go with them. So she finally builds a device to contact them telepathically so that they can get the clear instructions on how to free them out. And so she quickly builds the new device. And that's when Fred and Edna show back up. If I had a nickel for every time my parents walked in on me talking to the Phantom Zone through my time-space screen in my Supergirl costume. Talking to your other parents. Let's not get crazy, Corey. <laughs> so, at that point, Fred and Edna are heartbroken because, of course, Kara's gonna go to her real parents, and, but they don't interrupt her because they know how much this means to her and they love her very much. So, she turns on the device and it doesn't work and it, in, it is instead destroying her real parents. Just then, Fred Danvers steps forward and begins controlling the machine. Dad, what are you doing here? No, don't touch the controls. Don't panic. I've been watching you operate this device. As an electronics engineer, I know what's wrong. Turn this dial to full power. As an electrical engineer, Fred Danvers knows all about interdimensional space portals. Sure enough, he does, because it's starting to work. And that's when he explains why him and Edna are home early. It's because a dynamo blew out at the power station, and... Because of the weakened power, the movie house shut down. The old movie house. And it's the power dim out that nearly caused her ray to fail. And that filled a page. <laughs> and Zorel and Allura come out of the survival zone, and there's a happy reunion. And Linda, overjoyed to finally have her parents with her at long last, she decides to show them all the wonders of Earth, starting with her favorite escape tunnel. And Fred and Edna are happy for Kara, but heartbroken for themselves. Oh god, Edna, remember what happened in that imaginary story where this happened? We don't stand a chance. Uh, the first thing she shows them is a monument erected to Supergirl's rocket, and then she shows them Metropolis... 
And we get a flashback to Action Comics number 285, where we learn that from the survival zone, her parents watched her introduction parade. And that is a heartwarming panel. So you think uh, they were really baffled as to why Superman had kept her in an orphanage for a year? I don't know if they knew that part. Because <laughs> they say that it they were only able to witness it because the survival zone drifted near Earth momentarily. So, I feel like they can do the math between when they rocketed Supergirl to Earth and when this happened. <laughs> I think it's only appropriate that she stayed trapped in her own private phantom zone. So she gives Zor-El and Allura some civilian clothes, and we get a great panel of Zor-El putting on a shirt and tie while still wearing his Kryptonian headband. No, Dad. People on Earth won't wear headbands in it as a fashion accessory until the 1980s. Get with it. Ha-ha, I'm a trendsetter. <laughs> so she takes them to the Superman Museum, where, out loud, with bold speak... <laughs> <laughs> Zor-El goes, how strange. Back on Krypton, I knew him as my nephew, the Tot Kal-El. Shh, Dad, don't give away our secret identities. So, Kara, when are we going to your museum? Mom. So, there is a room in the Superman Museum dedicated to Supergirl, and they run into a little girl who is so excited about Supergirl, and Zor-El whispers to Allura, about how the little girl would be stunned if she knew that she was talking to the real Supergirl. Dad! And then there is an, a wall of imitation. James? Imitation, Kryptonite? Ding, 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 ding. I, I, it's still kind of a surprise, right? I mean, whenever it says Kryptonite in giant letters, it's kind of the opposite of, of a surprise. Not if you can't read, James. God. Illiterate Kryptonite! <laughs> So we get a scene where Allura and Zorel tell the Danverses that they are going to leave for the fortress tomorrow after Kara gathers her things, but not before they have a a nice home cooked meal with the Danverses. Where Allura and Zorel use their Kryptonian knowledge and superpowers to make what I could only assume is pride cake. Because Allura bakes a seven layer rainbow cake. And Zor-El makes rainbow ice cream with his super breath. I'm sorry, a hundred flavor ice creams. Dad, it's the 60s. They don't like gay people here. But in the meantime, Zor-El and Allura witnessed how much the Danverses love their daughter and realized that they have to find a way out of taking Kara away. And Zor-El's idea is to go to Kara's concealed lead vault to break out samples of kryptonite to remove his and Allura's powers forever with a piece of gold kryptonite. Because they think that if they don't have superpowers, Kara will reject them forever. And I'm beginning to see where Superman gets it from. <laughs> no, they just think that Kara is like Superman in that she is heartless <laughs> and would do something like that. They have watched too much of Superman and not enough of their daughter to realize that she is better than him. I'm sorry, Mom and Dad. I'll have to stash you away in this old folks' home until you're ready. <laughs> but Fred catches Zor-El before he doses himself with gold kryptonite, and we'll have none of it, because he knows that Kara would love her real parents with or without 
their superpowers. Meanwhile, Kara is pouring her soul out to the only one who truly understands her, that horse. <laughs> yeah, she's telling Comet everything, and Comet heartlessly tells her that she has to solve this problem on her own. Which is all I ever get from horses. And when she gets back to the Danverses, she finds out that her birth parents have left and told her to meet them at the fortress. So she heads to the fortress and finds out that they have moved into Kandor, and that that is their idea, that she can still have both sets of parents. They will be her Kandor parents, while her foster parents can be her Earth parents, and she will be doubly loved. I just hope you can still love us when we're small. And it's a really heartwarming end to this story that really, honestly, for a Silver Age story, really tugged at the heartstrings. Like, we made fun of it because it's what we do, but there were a lot of touching moments in this story. It's just a shame that the next page over, Superman returned from a mission in space, saw that Supergirl had parents, and promptly destroyed the city of Kandor. <laughs> Kids, that is a lie. Superman didn't actually do that. He doesn't find out that Zor-El Zor and Allura are alive for quite some time, if I remember right. But you had to point out that that wasn't true, and I think that says something right there. It does. <laughs> Moving on to the next story. We go to Action 311 from April of 64, written by Leo Dorfman, art by Jim Mooney, and the story is The Day Super Horse Became Human. No! Because we haven't already had this story seven times. So, we open up on Valentine's Day. <laughs> and Linda Lee Danvers is the most popular girl in Midvale. Uh, she gets a... Valentine from Dick Malvern, and also from a guy named Sandy Powers, who we haven't even met yet. And they both show up at her front door to deliver this. And then, in the most convenient time jump in comic book history, we cut to later in the day, as Supergirl goes to the Daily Planet. Yeah, as Supergirl heads to the Daily Planet, where she gets her Valentine fan mail, which is taking up the entire office. Supergirl, these Valentine gifts and greetings were sent to you from all over the globe. You're the most popular girl on Earth. Also, what's wrong with your hair? Um, I didn't have time to come. Anyway, is that a box of chocolates? <laughs> so, like, this reminds me of one of the first Superman stories I read, because I got into Superman right after he died, and one of the first stories that I read of him was a Christmas issue where the Justice League is answering his Christmas mail, and, like, they go to the post office, and there's just an entire room filled with nothing but letters to Superman. And most of them are inane things, but a lot of them have requests for help, and it's a whole issue of the Justice League just doing things to help people that Superman would have been able to do lickety-split. I just like how you can really see where your feelings from for this universe were established. Like, you were introduced to a world without Superman, and then he invaded that world later on with his weird black costume and mullet. <laughs> You've been trying to set things right ever since. Michael Bailey will tell you that it is not a mullet. It depends on the artist. It does. So anyway... Supergirl takes a mailbag away from the Daily Planet that is the size of a house. 
and she runs into Super Horse, who thinks about how much he wishes that he could love her as much as all these boys do. And she gets a telepathic summons from her merboy boyfriend, Jero. That's mer-boyfriend. So she heads down to Atlantis, where the emergency that he summoned her for was that he trained a school of fish to spell out the words, Love to my Valentine, Supergirl. Those are sentient beings with souls, Jero. And she kisses him, and from the depths of the ocean, Comet looks on jealously. And we get another convenient time jump. A Supergirl emerges from the ocean several hours later. And forlornly, Comet heads back in time to the witch Circe, where he talks to her and she remembers him as a centaur that she loved. And we get a rehashing of Comet's origin. With an added detail of how she wronged the wizard Maldor the day she cast a spell on him which turned his body into a series of knots, and this is the most horrifying thing I've ever seen in a DC comic. <laughs> okay, Graham Ingalls would have blushed at this. I like that you clarify DC because I'm pretty sure I've seen Mr. Fantastic look exactly like that. But it's okay, he's horrible. <laughs> so, we get the Animorph panel. What's and, happening to me? <laughs> and then we get the rehashing of how Malador banished Comet across space. Because even a brief recap of Super Horse's origin is weird and time-consuming, and I think that's the main reason he's around. It takes up two pages. Hey! <laughs> so, Circe tells Comet that she has a cure for him, but that she sees his future and he will regret changing from Super Horse back into a human. But Comet's like, no, do it. Man me. But it takes a while. So, Comet heads back to the future and then, as a side effect of the potion, loses his memory and plunges into an oil slick and comes out looking like a black stallion instead of a white horse. No, it's the Venom symbiote. Comet, you must resist. And that's when we get introduced to the hooded demon. Who is just the dread pirate Roberts, apparently. <laughs> like, at first, I thought the plot was Comet had accidentally come out of the time tunnel early, and we were like, in some other time period? No, this is the 1960s, and an old West bandit is terrorizing Midvale. That night, the hooded bandit sees Comet and thinks that he is the devil horse. He's with not fan wrong. With fantastic powers, and he, uh, he starts a fire, because if he's really the devil horse, he won't be afraid of flames. And because Comet is currently covered in oil from head to hoof, he bursts into flames, and it is the most terrifying panel of Comet I have ever seen. And I've seen 17 versions of him turning from man to horse. <laughs> it's like, oh god, the fire in his loins has reached outwards. And because the oil all burned off, Comet is now white again, which apparently is also part of the devil horse mythology in that Devil Horse changes colors, and anyone who sees it happen will gain control over the Devil Horse. And just to make sure, the Hooded Demon then shoots Comet in the face. But luckily, his superpowers aren't gone yet, and the bullets bounce off. God, how red would his face have been if he just killed that horse that had unrelated superpowers? So, he claims mastery over Comet, 
who still doesn't remember anything, and they rob a train, because that's a thing you did in the 60s, and a posse gets rounded up, because again, that's a thing that happened in the 60s, to stop the hooded demon, when Comet gets shot in the leg, and because Cersei's brew is finally affecting him, it actually injures him, and they head back to Hooded Demon's hideout, where the Hooded Demon goes to find a doctor and leaves Comet to bleed out. And what fascinates me is that this isn't the first time this exact scenario has happened to Comet. And just then is when Comet turns into Bronco Bill, who is now bleeding out of his shoulder, and takes the clothes that were left behind by the Hooded Demon, except the hood, and heads to a ranger cabin where he gets a little bit of first aid and then has to go on the lam because everyone thinks that he is the hooded demon because he's wearing the hooded demon's clothes. If only he had taken his mask and had created a new identity as the vigilante horseman. And, in an ironic twist, Comet steals another pure white horse. We know that's ironic because the narration declares, what irony. <laughs> And that's when uh, Comet remembers his super cape, which was loosened by the oil gusher that he created. So he takes the super cape and hides it in the saddlebag and then makes a jail for the horse and runs smack dab into Linda Danvers. And it's not five seconds after being spotted by Comet that the unthinkable happens. Is it unthinkable, James? Well, in a Superman comic now. An avalanche happens, causing Linda to fall down into a goalie, and just as she's about to use her superpowers to save herself, she gets lassoed by Bronco Bill Star. And she remembers meeting him as Supergirl, and gives him a thank you kiss, and he remembers meeting her as Supergirl, and kissing her the last time they met nine issues ago in Action Comics number 301. Why do I taste fish? Oh my god, James. Wow. Anyway, Linda falls head over heels in love with Bronco Bill over the course of 30 seconds, and uses her supervision to carve her name and his name in a heart on a tree. It's no moon, but it'll do. And then causes a rainbow, because... There is a superstition where if true sweethearts pass beneath lovers' falls, a rainbow will form in the West. So Linda causes a rainbow, and that's when the posse shows up, thinking that Comet is the hooded demon. There, it's the hooded demon, and he's found true love. Get him! And so he goes off on the lamb with his not-super horse. Supergirl shows up, blaming the hooded demon for casting a spell on Comet. And Bill tells her that Comet is not the horse that he's riding, but she doesn't believe him because of the super cape that she can see out of the saddlebag. You think she could just easily look at the jellyfish mark on his ass? And something randomly affects Supergirl's superpowers, and Bronco Bill runs away. Meanwhile, in the past, Cersei is watching the future and decides to use her time-space powers to revert Bronco Bill back into Comet. Because he asks for help. So we get the Animorph panel again. <sighs> and he has just enough time to take off the clothes before turning back into Comet the Super Horse. And it turns out that the gusher of oil caused something to come up with it. 
And what is that thing, James? Surprise kryptonite. Oil. Texas K. And that's what caused Supergirl to briefly lose her powers, and Comet saves her life. And that's when the posse shows up with the real hooded demon, and Kara realizes that Bronco Bill was innocent, and then pours her heart out to comment about how handsome Bronco Bill was, and how she'll probably never see him again. Fate plays strange tricks, Supergirl. Someday you might meet this Bronco Bill once again. <laughs> and that brings us to Action Comics number 312, May of 1964, written by Dorkman, art by Jim Mooney, the fantastic menace of the LLs. Ah, shit. Please tell me this is where Kara is attacked by LL Cool J after mishandling Mama Said Knock You Out on karaoke night. That would be an excellent story, James, but alas... We are many, many decades away from LL Cool J. <sighs> dark times. Dark times. We open in Atlantis, where a Cybern Space Express for Supergirl Planet Earth has crash-landed, and it is a message for her. So Supergirl goes off to Atlantis, and Lori Lamaris has the package from the damaged missile, and it is a predictor like the one that they gave to Superman back in Superman's Day of Doom from Superman number 157. Actually, don't read that story because we're just repeating it here. You didn't see anything. Smoke bomb. James, tell me if something looks funny about this editor's note. Wait a second. It doesn't say editor. It says addition. <laughs> the editor screwed up an editor's note and didn't catch it in editing. What am I supposed to do, proofread myself? I got 17 Superman comics to look over. I, I gotta check my spelling. I want a typewriter here. If I accidentally hit the Q key, it's all over. DC Comics goes down the tubes. So, uh, she asks this supercomputer what kind of adventure she'll have today, and it prints out a long sheet of paper that says your feats will be affected by LL, 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 LL. Cool, Jim. And so she assumes that it must be damaged because, you know, it's not like she doesn't know 72 different people in this universe that have the initials LL, including herself. <laughs> my God, I'm my greatest enemy. Then she just starts punching herself while holding up a mirror. Like, you almost had me, me. <laughs> Like, just think about this. How many people does she know with those initials? There's Lex Luthor, there's Lena Luthor, even though it's technically Lena Thorell at this point. There's Lori Lamaris, there's Lucy Lane, there's Lois Lane, there's Lana Lang. Like, and we all know the ladies love cool James. I'm just gonna give you that one, James. Supergirl heads off on her patrol, and she reaches the Pacific Coast and sees an abandoned building starting to collapse, and... Rather than just let an abandoned building collapse, she picks it up and throws it into a swamp. No, you just destroyed Swamp Thing's house. But what she actually did was ruin a multi-million dollar disaster sequence because she carried away their special prop. Gasp! A movie company. Allied pictures of Hollywood. That computer was correct. LL has brought me luck, all right. A double dose of bad luck. You drop the house in a swamp? Ye gods, I'll have to pay all these extras till they dig it out. So, of course, once again, Supergirl has to be the entire visual effects team for a big-budget Hollywood production. 
I mean, this time it's her own fault. Also, I just love how Kara immediately becomes Jim Carrey in the number 23. <laughs> yeah, seeing LL everywhere. So she builds another house, and what she actually did was paint a bunch a bunch of pictures that make it look like a building collapsed in front of them without actually having to have a building. So Kara apparently has an excellent animation career in front of her. Then immediately she gets out of Jim Carrey mode because she's like, ah, so much for the LLs. It was all just a coincidence. Heads by a colored smoke signal that leads her to a converto plane, which is hovering while it picks up a passenger from the desert. It's Lady Killer Kane, leader of the Million Dollar Gang. No stick-up artist can join his mob unless he's stolen at least a million. I'll nab him, even though there are two LLs in Killer and four LLs in Million Dollar. Nothing can go wrong this time. How much you want to bet he's named after Bob Kane, too, just as a slap in the face? So as she catches him, it turns out that this guy is wearing a wig and a fake mustache and isn't actually Lady Killer Lane. He's an FBI agent, and uh, they are trying to trap his gang, but Supergirl interfered. Wait a second, now- wait a second, wait a second. He's trying to infiltrate the Million Dollar Gang. Yes. He did this by wearing a disguise. Who else in this episode was mysteriously wearing a disguise, only to be taken out. Comet the Super Horse? The bogus Jimmy who died by the air helicopter. And last issue, what did Jimmy do? Have the Midas Touch, which he could have used to give this gang a million dollars of ill-gotten gains. Wow, James, that is some conspiracy theory, sir. Where are the subpoenas? <laughs> So, just then, Supergirl noticed an abandoned telegraph line and realizes that she goofed because she is in Death Valley, which also has double L's. And uh, she goes, well, maybe if I break one of these poles, it'll break the jinx. What? So she breaks a telegraph pole and then uses it as as a spear to knock the plane out of the sky so that the FBI agent can arrest the rest of the gang. This is going to end in her murdering everyone with LL initials to break the spell, isn't it? (laughs) I just have to get the L's out of my head! Um, they find out that there is going to be a rich person booze cruise, (laughs) and that that's probably where Lady Killer will be. So, Kara realizes that Madcap Marilyn Drake is on the guest list, and that she once recovered some stolen jewels for her. Maybe she'll let me attend in her place. So, Marilyn does allow Kara to put on another wig and a dress to attend in her stead. So, Kara goes to the booze cruise in a little black dress and a beehive hairdo. While Madcap Marilyn's butler rats her out to the mob. And correct me if I'm wrong, but did they rehire the same butler that did the exact same thing the last time? Probably. This guy's name is Stebbins, though. You don't get much classier than Stebbins the butler. Wow, that's almost a name. And so, at the gambling cruise, Kara runs into Lady Killer Kane. The real one. Who is trying to flirt with her. And rather than arrest him now, she wants to catch him red-handed. So Kane's gang starts attacking the crew of the ship, and then they hold up the entire booze cruise. 
No, the booze. And as the Million Dollar Gang flees with the loot, Supergirl makes a quick change, and right before they get caught by her, they tell her about a bomb that's on the ship. And we get the inspiration for a movie that will be coming out in two years, with Supergirl holding a bomb over her head looking for a place to dispose of it. (laughs) Oh, there are some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. And much like... Batman in that movie that will come in two years, she just chucks it into the sky over the ocean and it blows up. That's when she drags the ship back to shore, but can't figure out where the thieves went. And she shows them why she had to do it. And it's because the ship was getting close to Niagara Falls. Another LL. Letters. And so as she flies off, she thinks to herself, way those LLs are affecting my patrol today is getting me down, and now my next chore is to visit the new intergalactic space college. Hmm. I wonder if the two LLs in the word college would bring me good luck, or bad. And all I have to say about that is, when you live in space, isn't space college just college? I mean, if not, I'm just going to call college here Earth College, which we really should be doing already. (laughs) So she finds space college, and... Apparently, it's where a score of galaxies send their astronauts to learn space science and navigation, which shouldn't you already know navigation if you're being sent to a a college in a far-off galaxy? Of space. And we see a plethora of weird-looking aliens, including Tomar Ray's cousin, Bill. <laughs> and also a dude that looks like a stalk of asparagus that got painted orange and had a brain put on it. He's the dean. But just then, some space stuff happens, and Kara has to fly out in her own private Supergirl spaceship uh, to try to survey the damage. She gets hit with special metals and transparent materials and radioactive energy waves, and it takes her towards the Sargasso Sea, a vast graveyard where the interstellar magnetic currents of space have gathered up the space wreckage of the past ages. And wouldn't you know it, the wreckage of the past ages contains... But don't worry, Kara's plight has been witnessed by a spaceman who flees his space shack and jetpacks over to Supergirl to rescue her. And so he does, but Kara can't tell who he is because her x-ray vision is too weak from the kryptonite to see through his helmet. That mysterious spaceman, he saved my life, but why didn't he speak to me? Why did he leave without telling me who he was? She heads off to try to find her rescuer. Meanwhile, on a distant moon of Saturn. I wonder what Supergirl would say if she knew it was I, Byron, who saved her life. Revealing f***ing Superhorse. (laughs) Specifically, Superhorse back in human form after only an issue. And so what happened is a comet flew by, which turned him back into a human while he was out in space, which that sounds like a terrible thing to happen while you're out flying in space. That's really bad planning on your behalf, Comet. And luckily, Comet turned human in an atmosphere and found a spacesuit and then was able to save Kara. And then the Comet has left this area of space and he turns back into a horse. So we get two Animorphs panels on one page. There are no LLs in my name, but actually the predictor was correct. I've just realized that it was the famous Haley's Comet, which changed me into a human. 
then enabled me to save her. Just a question, though. Is that actually how you spell Haley's Comet? Oh, wait, no, it is. It is how you spell Haley's Comet. Huh, all this time I thought you spelled it with an I and only one L and an EY. But apparently you spell it with two L's, no I, and an EY. Corey, did a Silver Age comic book just teach us a science fact? I, I think it did. Uh... And that brings us to our last story of the day, which is from Action Comics number 313. Uh, we have no writer information for this issue, uh, but the art was done by Al Plastino, co-creator of Supergirl, uh, and it was June of 1964. The story is the end of Superman's secret identity. And because we have no writer information, I'm just going to say, Will Eisner, prove me wrong. Prove me wrong. I, I'm fairly certain Will prove didn't me wrong. Alright, whatever. Anyway, we open with Superman being thankful that Supergirl is away on a distant planet, because it means that or not being thankful, upset that she's on a distant planet, because he had to do both her patrols and his patrols, and he is just getting back so that he can do his other job of Daily Planet Reporter, and as he is putting his clothes on, Supergirl bursts in through the closet door and exposes his identity to Perry White. Great Krypton, Supergirl, have you lost your senses? <gasps> your betrayal has ruined my career. And way to have absolutely zero game when it comes to protecting your identity, Clark. So far, all they know is you're wearing a Superman shirt. And for some reason, we're getting dressed in the closet of... The Daily Planet. At regular human speed. For all they know, Clark, you could just be a homeless living in that closet. I don't think Clark has an apartment, so that would track. <laughs> and Perry says that he will never reveal Clark's identity because Perry is apparently a horrible reporter in the 60s. The biggest story in the history of news just dropped on your feet, and you're ignoring it. Hey, this was the days of responsible journalism, Corey. You think if Clark revealed himself to the editor at BuzzFeed, that wouldn't be in a top ten list an hour later? Top ten times Superman revealed his identity to me. Perry could actually make that now that I think about it. <laughs> right? So, Supergirl gets a package delivered to her at the Daily Planet, and it has a statue of her flying. Look, Clark, me! It's from the New York World's Fair where they're going to display a statue of Superman in the wax exhibit. And Superman is having none of this because his life was just ruined. So he grabs Supergirl and throws her into what I believe is a storage closet. Supergirl, I can't understand this double cross. Do you realize the harm you've done? Why? 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 I can't explain it. I, I must have blacked out. There's just one way to make it up. Stay there while I step behind these files. And moments later, Linda Lee Danvers pops out and goes, Now I'll reveal my secret identity to Perry White. That'll even things out. No. Revealing me as Clark Kent was bad enough. Revealing your identity won't help things. I'll slip out of this side door before you're noticed. Which I believe Clark Kent has said to many women over the years. <laughs> and Perry sees Linda Danvers slink out of the office. Oh, Clark, you're at it again. 
and asks Clark who it was, and Clark tells him that it's Linda Danvers from Midvale asking for his autograph, which Perry just met Linda, like, a month ago. So he should recognize her, but... Look, uh, all of the cancer he's gotten from those cigars has gone to his brain. He's not even the editor of the Daily Planet. They just let him have the office. And he assures Clark that he will not reveal his secret, that he is still the Namby Bambi reporter that is afraid of his own shadow. Don't worry, Clark. You'll always be pathetic to me. Oh, what a friend. And so Superman goes off to patrol, and he decides to patrol his best friend's city instead of his own, because he is in in Gotham instead of Metropolis, and sees that Batman is guarding a shipment of payroll for a silk factory. And Batman is just sitting on his ass next to sacks of money with dollar signs on them, waiting for crime to happen. Which it does. There are old-timey mobsters hiding behind blocks of silk that we know are silk because it is clearly labeled with giant labels that say silk. And... They throw grenades at the armored car and shoot it with guns and Tommy guns, but Superman wraps them up in a bow tie. I'm not even kidding. He uses some of the silk to wrap them up in a bow tie. And Batman is cheesed. Why the grandstand play, Superman? I was on guard with a dozen weapons in my utility belt. Besides, the Pharaoh was inside an armored car. Which, I am really intrigued by Al Plastino's Batman. That is the ugliest Batman I've ever seen. Like, that bat symbol on his chest is just so weird. You know who he looks like? Serial Batman. Like, it looks like his mask doesn't fit on his face well. Well, and like, the bat symbol on his chest is an actual circle rather than an oval. Like, it's just weird. And he's out of shape. Yeah, he's got the barrel chest thing going that Superman had during the Silver Age, but Batman never had that. So Superman convinces Batman to punch the armored car, which Batman does without thinking, just whoop! And instead of shattering his hand, as I'm sure was Superman's intention, Batman's fist just goes straight through it because it was made of balsa wood the entire time. Which, I don't think you can make a car out of balsa wood. I'd have discovered the substitution, but I was in a rush. Commissioner Gordon phoned me at dawn on my hotline to give me this assignment. I hopped out of bread and hurried to the bank. Didn't even eat breakfast. And so, for some reason, Lois Lane is also in Gotham City reporting on this event. And that's when Batman takes Supergirl's cue and... Reveals Superman's identity to Lois by showing her the secret compartment in his cape where all of his Clark Kent clothes are. Batman, you're my friend. How could you betray my identity after all the vital missions we've accomplished together? I can't explain it. It's a sudden, uncontrollable impulse. You know I'd never do anything like this in my right mind. And Batman hangs his head in shame. And Lois assures Superman that she will also guard his secret with her life, because just like Perry White, apparently Silver Age Lois is also a horrible reporter. It's all about ethics in superhero journalism, James. <laughs> Hashtag Supergate. <laughs> Meanwhile, the SS Victory has been raided by the Pirate Gang, because Metropolis just has everything. The Pirate Gang of Canada! <laughs> 
Like, they must be the most polite pirates of all time. Um, excuse me, A. Can you please give us all of your money, A? And when you think about it, A is just a messed up R. <laughs> and the pirates have a submarine and also a submachine gun that they fire at Jimmy and Clark in the Daily Planet's newly rebuilt helicopter. Jimmy, no, you'll die. And can we talk about Jimmy and Clark's outfits? Just coming straight from the set of Fargo in their fur coats and their green and yellow snow hats. And mittens. They are clearly wearing actual honest-to-God mittens. How burning up must Superman be right now? And when Jimmy lands on the beach, he tries to call Superman, but because Clark is right there, he can't respond. And, uh... That's when Clark heads off into the frozen wasteland of Canada. Putting his clothes on a snowman he built, so that from a distance, Jimmy won't think he's Superman. He'll just think that Clark froze to death. Superman then buries himself underneath the water and manages to track down the pirate gang of Canada's subterranean base and promptly gives them what for. And, of course, because this all happened in an iceberg, Superman makes a cooler pun. My Kryptonian genetics have left me cold to your pleas of mercy. So Superman destroys his snowman and puts on his parka again and heads to help Jimmy repair the helicopter when Lori Lamaris pops out of the ocean and stabs him in the chest. To reveal his identity to Jimmy Olsen, which now has led three different people to betray Superman in the span of 12 pages. Knowing that something's afoot, Superman calls a meeting of his super best friends, where he introduces them to his brainwashing machine, which he says <laughs> he's built just for this occasion, but we all know better. This is the seventh time he's had to use this on Perry, so... And he tells them that for their own good, they all need to attach their brain stems to this thing and let him carefully remove the memories of his secret identity, while also warning them that it could uh, erase their brains completely. And also to empty their pockets of all metallic objects, because it might cause a short circuit. <laughs> well, when you put it that way, I've gotta trust you, Superman. So, after he tries to brainwash them, he asks them if they remember his secret identity, and they all do. And that's when Perry goes AWOL on the rest of them and is like, You know what? I said I wouldn't reveal it, but now I will reveal your secret unless you give me a million dollars in cold hard cash. Which is kind of hilarious, considering Perry is quite rich already. He had Jimmy Olsen with the Midas Touch just <laughs> last episode. Meanwhile, Jimmy demands to be made, made King of Bardonia, and Lois, always uh, the practical one, wants Superman to maroon Lana Lang on a desert planet forever. Lana Lang, par Professor Potter's niece. She has to clarify that part. Not any of those other Lana Langs, you know. But wouldn't you know it? Watching all this take place is the Superman Revenge Squad. Laughing as their plot to finally defeat Superman has come to fruition. And Superman blames himself because he thinks the shock treatment. Because apparently his brainwash machine is shock treatment. Jesus Christ. Yeah, he thinks that this has broken their brains and made them evil. 
Of course it has. You don't just electrocute your best friends, Superman. Good God. So he knocks over a large jar of tear gas. Again, clearly labeled. <laughs> and yeah, I guess he had in case they said no. And it fills the room with tear gas. I smashed a bottle of tear gas, but don't worry, you heels. I'll inhale it with my super suction and blow it out the window. And they are not grateful at all. They still demand all of the things that they demanded. And Superman is like, no, I'm just going to throw you into the ocean. So he throws them into the ocean as they scream and beg for help. Glub, glub. And we get the caption of, what is this? Is Superman violating his code to never destroy a human life? Uh, Corey, if he doesn't know what it feels like to kill somebody, why would he have a no-killing code in the first place? You don't understand, Superman. Let's move on. (laughs) So a spaceship swoops out of the sky and retrieves Perry, Lois, and Jimmy. And it turns out that everybody that he has talked to today is androids. Including weird, messed up Batman, which finally explains that costume. And it turns out that Superman knows it was the Revenge Squad all along. What, you mean he did the Superman thing? (laughs) Yes. It turns out, whenever Superman dropped the tear gas, he looked closely at each of the faux friends and noticed none of them were crying. Because they don't have tears, because androids, while they dream of electric sheep, do not have tear ducts. Superman has clearly not spent any time with the Vision. And the Superman Revenge Squad does not fight back at all. They're just like, okay, just toss the robots into the vat of acid. It is good to merge with the plasmic fluid again. We'll try to do better next time, Android Master. So then he finds all of his real friends in suspended animation, and none of them know his secret identity. And the only one that wasn't there was Supergirl, because like we said at the beginning of the issue, she was off in a faraway galaxy. Well, to be fair, Batman still remembers Clark's secret identity, because that time they undressed in front of each other on a boat. Right. That's canon. Look it up. Supergirl rescues the six of them. And after recounting to them what exactly happened, we get a usual suspects flashback montage of all of the odd things that gave Superman hints that they were androids. Like Supergirl tearing open a package instead of using her x-ray vision to see what's inside. Or Batman saying he had to rush out before he had his breakfast with a face free of stubble because androids don't grow hair. And Lori Lamaris, who was unaffected by the cold air because androids don't breathe. So unlike Superman having puffs of visible breath, neither Jimmy or Lori had puffs of breath. Also, there was a loud whirring noise every time they moved around and they spoke in cold mechanical voices. I just thought they were having a bad week. And now, for our Super Female of the Month, Dear Editor, whatever happened to Streaky the Supercat, who was Supergirl's pet? Is he in the Phantom Zone? Please bring him back, because I miss him. Goldie Farrow, Paciac, New Jersey. (sighs) You'll find Streaky very active in the July issue of Adventure, where he appears in a full-length novel with the other members of the Legion of Super Pets. Now, you know what I'm talking about, like the Gomet the Super Horse and 
Bobo the Super Monkey and Dog the Super Dog and the Lizardo the Super Lizard and Koala Man the man who is also a koala and he's on the Super Pet team and he has the pet Cockroach his name is Fred I believe <laughs> and doesn't the Flash have a tortoise? Come on! Come on! Doesn't the fl- doesn't the Flash have a turtle? He says the Flash has a turtle, so I guess that's on the team too. <laughs> but don't worry, you get your streaky kid. Now get out of here! You're bothering me. <laughs> and folks, we have learned that the best thing about our super female section is that Mort Weisinger actually sounded like James. Oh yes, this was incredible. There's a wonderful documentary that just dropped on Hulu called Batman and Bill about the life of Bill Finger, the true creator of Batman. It's really extraordinary and it has a lot of stuff you've never heard before about Bill Finger, I promise you that. And the most amazing thing in it is, for the first time, we hear Bill Finger and Mort Weisinger recorded on tape at a convention. And Mort Weisinger sounds exactly like my impression, and that scared the shit out of me. Oh, it's beautiful. It really, really is. All right, that was all for this month. As always, you can reach us at supergirlpowerhour at gmail.com. At supergirlpowerhour.com, you can find us on Twitter at sgirlpowerhour. And you can find us on Facebook at Supergirl Power Hour. And as for me, you can find me talking about comic book history and culture on the monthly graphic novelism podcast, and also on a box office pulp, spinning some bullshit about movies. And you can find me on Twitter at CoreyMurray21, and you can find snippets of my writing at WomenWriteAboutComics.com, where we have been nominated for an Eisner Award for Best Journalism in Comics, so that is exciting. And that means, technically, Corey has up for an Eisner, and I really want that website to win because... That is the ultimate final nail into any argument. It's like, oh, you do think I don't know comics? Well, maybe uh, Will Eisner says different. <laughs> and because of that, you will be able to find me at San Diego Comic-Con in July if you are also in attendance. So if you're going to be at San Diego Comic-Con, drop me a line on Twitter, and I will be happy to meet up with you and talk all things Supergirl with you. Also just announced... I am joining the DCTV podcast family, uh, run by the great Andy Burbeck. I am joining Andy, Kat, and Amy on Titans Podcast, which will be a podcast devoted to the new TV show coming out, uh, dedicated to the Titans. We are going to be launching our Season Zero stuff relatively shortly. We just announced the podcast a couple of days ago, so... Uh, that is also exciting news for me. I'm very excited about this project. This is the first time hearing of this, and might I say, you scandalous wench. Eh, but uh, you can check Corey out there, check me out over there, and check out all of our fine Pulp Podcast Network shows at pulppodcastnetwork.wordpress.com. Superman, no! This has been a Pulp Podcast production. May I ask what you hope to achieve with this podcast? 
whose directors created these movies. They filled them with subtext, motifs, messages. They deserve to be discussed. The answer is irrelevant. Movies are simply entertainment, nothing more. Does it matter what they mean? Yes. Yes, it does. I don't understand. Well, Cody, I guess that's because I'm a human being. And you're a robot. <coughs> oh, sorry. That's quite alright. Box office pulp. Big things have small beginnings. Hands up!